0: Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Elie Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we turn today to a piece that you wrote recently called America in Freefall, sort of looking at um, all the various, I guess you'd have to call them vectors of American decline at the moment, but let me, before I sort of have you walk us through each of the areas that you talk about in this piece. You actually open it by talking about um, some of the historical examples we have of what it looks like when civilizations start to fray. Why don't you walk us through a a couple of the examples that you pointed your readers towards?
1: Well, I mean, in the late Republic and in the late Empire, in the Roman situation, in In uh, the United States' own history, 1850s, right before the Civil War, again in the 1930s, there there are moments when institutions don't work very well and the people who run them cannot be flexible or they cannot adjust to a polarization in society. And the polarization is usually over uh, existential issues that have been silent. And uh, in the case of the Depression... It was an accumulation of wealth and a reaction of government that made made the depression a lot worse. And then the problem in the United States is they never could square the circle of how could everybody be free and some have slaves. In Rome, the problem was how can you have an Italian agrarian republic? Those ideas extended this all the way to Iraq or all the way up to Scotland or all the way uh, to the Sahara Desert when the people are very different and their experiences are different, then they have this tension and you get gangs and violence and uh, et cetera. Sort of like we saw in the House of Representatives the other day where the Democratic Party sort of reminded me of a gang out of Republican Rome. They just sort of occupied the floor of the House and started screaming and yelling. So we're getting to, there's a lot of symptoms like that in our own society because the institutions don't reflect, uh, they don't have a mechanism to deal with these problems. And the media and spokesmen, they can't articulate them. There's a there's a vast gulf between reality and the way that elites represent reality. And people get frustrated. So we're seeing that in our own society, I think.
0: So let me have you walk us through um, some of the different areas in which you're seeing this, which you describe in this piece. The first of which... Actually, a pretty good example of the trend you were just describing about reality being described one way and playing out another. You talk about the economy in this piece, and, and President Obama's generally laudatory language about the economy. But you see the developments over the last eight or ten years very differently.
1: Yeah, I think we've redefined unemployment so that people who have not found a job, I think it's 18 months, are no longer considered viable, and they're not – calculated into the statistic around 5% unemployment, but rather they're part of a non-participation rate of way over 62%. We haven't had 3% economic growth in Obama's tenure. We've added $10 trillion to the national debt. More importantly, nobody's talking about how you would ever reduce that or how you would service that if you didn't have basically zero interest rates. And then Obama says, well, look at the stock market. Well, the stock market is only because... There's zero interest rates, and so people who have $50,000 life savings, they look around and they think, wow, I don't want to get burned in real estate like 2008. If I put it in the bank, I get no return, basically, so I'll put it in the stock market. So everybody knows that we can't go on the way that we're going on, and Obama's basically saying to us in coded language... I just don't, I don't want to touch Social Security entitlements. I don't want to deal with the deficit. I don't want to do the, deal with the national debt. I do not want to deal with Obamacare's problems. I just want to get out before this whole thing implodes. And uh, I think most people feel that it's going to implode, at least uh, within the next two or three years. So they're very, they're tentative. And then we have this whole generation of young people who they, they go into debt, fifty eighty thousand 80,000 for college. The college is sort of like a used car financing company. They they don't really tell them what's going to happen to you. Just borrow the federally guaranteed money. Give it to us. We won't make any accountability. We'll sort of be a therapeutic curricula. You'll graduate in six years with seventy to $100,000, and you're on your own. So your studies class, your environmental studies major, your Chicano studies minor, your sociology we don't know what it's for. We don't know whether it's viable, but... Everybody should go to college. Well, they—they're graduating now, and that's not true. They're not getting jobs, so they're going back home. And this is sort of the Sanders phenomenon, I think, represented that angst. So we're seeing it, and racial relations are much worse because uh, we have—we can't square that circle. We have people being slaughtered in Chicago every day, and yet the elites are going after hunters uh, that really don't commit any crime that like. The AR-15, or something, or we have inner-city youth that employers don't want to work with for a variety of reasons. Yet the black community is not able to say we're going to guarantee that our schools turn out well-spoken, well-read um, potential hires for the business community. So, I, and neither there's no way to solve that problem right now, given the black leadership in the Democratic Party. And so in this whole chaos, people make the necessary adjustments. So they they try to find a place where it's safe. They try to find a charter school for their kids if they can. They try to get some type of medical care that navigates around Obamacare, and then they don't articulate it. Then a guy like Trump comes along and he throws a a ball into the, the screen, so to speak, like that Apple commercial, and Wow. Uh, he gets 35%, 40%, 45% approval rating. It's pretty amazing.
0: Let me ask you a further question on the race relations point because you, you addressed it in the column too. I, I think that if you had told somebody, especially somebody who had sort of lived through the agitations of the 50s and 60s, I think if you had told them in, I don't know, the, the late 80s or the early 90s, maybe even as recently as you know, 10 years ago, um, that in the year 2016 you would be talking about racial tensions sort of frothing at the level that they are right now. I think think they'd be shocked. Um, I wonder what you attribute that to. I mean it did seem like – even though it was herky-jerky that there was a fairly linear progression, and it seems like we've stepped back quite a lot in the last several years. Well, I think it was
1: the idea of affirmative action dash identity politics dash um, careerism dash so that all of a sudden people – that used to be kind of buffoonish like Al Sharpton or Jorge Ramos at Univision, they became sort of emblematic that there's an elite now that exists in journalism, politics, academia to whom race is essential, not incidental to their character. And so they always have to... F- this explains this this epidemic of fake racial incidents at Clemson, at Duke, uh, and... The same thing with sexual assault at Columbia. And it's a engine that needs fuel. And the fuel has to be always there's racial prejudice. It's, there's a lack of parity. So if you have 12 million illegal Im- immigrants, a lot of them from Oaxaca, and they don't reach instant parity, then you need a lot of self-appointed representatives to make charges against the majority population. And uh, it's been pretty... It's pretty successful. You can see it in the caricatures of that system by Elizabeth Warren or Ward Churchill that create identities uh, in pursuit of career subjectives. And then the other thing is Barack Obama. We we because he's mellifluous and he's Ivy League and he doesn't talk like Trump. We forget sometimes that he was the one that introduced us to the Skip Gates. Uh, tragic comedy. He was the one who said take a knife, uh, take a gun to a knife fight. He was the one that said get in their faces. He was the one that said clingers and wrote off the, the population of Pennsylvania. He was the one who libeled his own grandmother as a typical white person. He appointed Eric Holder who said my people and a nation of cowards. He was the one who said punish her." own name. I could go on all day and I'll stop but after seven years of that, about half the country who was invested in that, liked it, and saw advantages politically in, in, in their own careers, and then the, half the country got very angry at it. And so privately what people say about racial relations and, and is much different than their public proclamations. And so I would imagine that Barack Obama, he had three rappers not long ago. One had an ankle bracelet go off. One was later arrested for pimping and the other had an album um where a dead white judge was being gloated. People were gloating about his death on the White House Lawn Rappers. So, okay, would he ever invite any of those people into his own home to date his daughter? I don't think so. Does he want to live near those people? I don't think so. Does he want his daughters listening to that music? I don't think so. So there's a sense that what people do in their own lives racially uh, is something that's quite different than what they say publicly, and that's not sustainable historically. I mean, well, and that's why we have the Trump phenomenon, I think, among other things.
0: Well, one of the other areas that you point to in the piece as an area where the country is in free fall is foreign policy. I mean, it's something that we talk about a fair bit on this show, but I wonder if you were, if you were to sort of characterize this in you know, broad brushstrokes, Victor, if, if you were explaining this to somebody who had been in a coma for the last eight years, how would you describe the changes in American foreign policy well, and I, our relation with the world?
1: I think basically what we take for granted, free use of the seas, free air travel, free in the sense it can go anywhere it wants, uh, certain protocols about trade and commerce and communications, all that was predicated on the post-war global order that was led by the West – and the United States in particular. Now I think most people don't feel that's true any longer after the skedaddle from Iraq, the fake red lines in Syria, the destruction of Libya, Benghazi, the fake reset with um, Putin, uh, the Spratly Islands aggrandizement from China, the Iran deal that was so hyped and we know from now that out of the mouth of Ben Rhodes and Obama himself that it's not what it's supposed to have been. And, uh, the, the outreach to Cuba and earlier to Nicaragua and Venezuela and you add, and then the estrange, estrangement from Israel and the Gulf states. If you add all that up, I think you get the impression that the United States either can't or will not play its former role, and that regional hegemons like Iran and the Persian Gulf, or Russia and Eastern Europe and the Baltics, or China vis a vis Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, that they're re-exercise, they're re-emerging as legitimate uh, alternatives to the United States, and more importantly, the United States doesn't see this as a bad thing. They feel that uh, they being the Obama administration think that we'd overreached or we hadn't we had no reason ethically or morally to ever have assumed that role or we misspent money that could have been used for social programs whatever the reason is we're in a period of trans trends uh we're in a uh, you know, transmission of power. And I think if you're in Japan, you really don't know if you're under the nuclear umbrella. If you're in South Korea, ditto that. Same with Taiwan. Same with the Philippines. Same with Australia. If you're in Europe, don't expect any help on from, advice uh, from the United States about security issues vis-a-vis um, Ukraine or the Baltic states. If you're in Latin America, you really don't know whether the United States is an advocate of free market Democratic capitalism, or it's sort of wink and nod that it likes what it sees in Cuba or Nicaragua and Venezuela. So it's chaotic. And out of that chaos, in the next, I think in the next six months, we're going to see a lot more ISIS activity. We're going to see a lot more muscularity on the part of Russia and China. We're going to see a, uh, some problems in Latin America. And it's all going to be predicated on the idea that Obama abdicated his role there's opportunities and there's vacuums and we're still not sure whether a president clinton or trump might not reverse that so we better do what we can when we can
0: let me ask you this question to close we started off this program talking about some of the historical examples of societies sort of starting to come apart and um, but you also reference in there a couple of fairly traumatic moments in American history, whether it was the Depression or the Civil War, things that we did eventually bounce back from. So what I'll ask you here to close: How would you go about, Victor, sifting through, trying to figure out what is what's cyclical and what's secular? Yeah. You know what?
1: Well, you'd have to have a link. I think it, we had a Lincoln and a Roosevelt, but you'd need a president who would say. Uh, we're not the Balkans, we're not Rwanda, we're not the Ottoman Empire, we're not Austria-Hungary. We're going to start ignoring our superficial appearance and we're going to be Americans and we're not going to play identity politics. And the Chicano movement will end up like the Italian-American movement or whatever. And he would have to have a statesman and a culture that would follow him. And then we'd have to address these severe... Financial problems, we'd have to say, you know, you're not going to be able to retire at 62 and get Social Security, and you're not going to be able to uh, double the number of people on disability every five or six years. So it would be very tough. The the medicine would be almost as bad as the disease, and uh, we'll see if we have it in us. We've done it twice before, and uh, we'll see if we can do it three times. There's certain things that we have going for us. We have the best constitution. We have the best high-tech universities. We have enormously successful areas in agriculture, uh, energy production, high-tech, Silicon Valley stuff. But we have enormous problems too, and we're kind of on a tipping point. It, it really requires something other than leaders that shout and scream and try to take over the House Representative floor on the pretext that a radical islamicists uh, who killed 50 people the the answer to that is is to ban a semi-automatic weapon as if that would have stopped either the orlando shooter or the 9-11 car hijackers who use box cutters so we need to get serious about what the problems are and what the remedies and stop the theater which is really designed for political gain and balkanization uh, that it's gone on and uh, when we talk of red states or the white vote or the Latino vote or blue states, you're getting the impression that we're fragmenting in the way that we were in eighteen fifty. This time it's a little bit scarier because it's not just region against region, but people are migrating or they're immigrant whatever term you want to blue states and red states. And they're not very much alike. And as I've said before, if Cody, Wyoming wants to have a sanctuary city where there's no federal gun laws or Salt Lake, there's no EPA laws. That would be the natural reaction to sanctuary cities that Obama has promoted where people can just nullify federal law as the way Obama has. So you, you're starting to see, a, I think, a widespread uh, trend to just ignore the law, don't enforce it if it's deemed socially unacceptable. And, and under, I think Obama will have a lot to answer for in that, on that ground.
0: All right. That's all the time we have for today's program. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classes podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.